Welcome on Democracy with FP Wellman. I am your host, Fred Wellman, coming to you from the season three trailer of The Mandalorian suburbs of St. Louis. <laughs> really? Grogu's coming back. <laughs> Do a lot of Star Wars around here. My girlfriend thinks it's too much, but then she gave me these beautiful bookends for Christmas, so she's wrong. Uh, anyway, so here we are. Man, uh, it's great to be here in St. Louis instead of D.C., which is so very, very, very stupid right now. Uh, we're going to talk about some of that stupidity on the show like we always do every week. Our democracy continues to struggle with the insanity in D.C. and the people we sent there. Um, I've got a great guest who has a really unique perspective on that better than most. So I'm not going to waste any time like I usually do. Let's get right on to the show. Welcome, welcome, welcome. As I mentioned, I am your host, Fred Wellman. And that's surprising to you because I keep showing up here because my name's in the title. So I have to come back and I'm paying for it. So here we are. Uh, you know, this is On Democracy. Thanks for being here. I really appreciate you. As always, Matt tortures me after the show. I don't know if I, I don't know if I was supposed to tell that to anybody, but he'll torture me if I don't tell you to like and subscribe and review and share and please don't hurt me mad it's <laughs> you know we're just trying to do our best here so make sure you do that on all of our platforms you can find our show on youtube you can find it you can find it on apple spotify i don't know it's everywhere buzzsprout but in the meantime we've got a great show you know it's uh it is a crazy week this week uh as there we're going to say that a lot from now on. i think i say that every week let's just not bullshit ourselves i actually say that every week my aunt says i do so thanks uh this week especially you know, we have speakers you know and then they're doing their stupid shit they're passing bills that go nowhere uh but most interestingly enough they've got their committee assignments coming out there's a lot to talk about that so I really wanted to have, I've been, I've been begging him to come out for a while. So he's coming from uh, <laughs> the bucolic uh, front seat. <laughs> and so I got, I got, I'm really thrilled to have with us Denver Riggerman. You know, he's an Air Force veteran, which we don't hold against him. He's a National Security Agency contractor. He represented Virginia's 5th District, which, by the way, is a really beautiful place, which we're going to talk about. He's since moved on to focusing on respectable work, co-owning Silverback Distillery with his wife and daughter <laughs> and Virginia's beautiful Rockfish River Valley near Charlottesville. Months after leaving office, he was recruited to join the staff of the House Select Committee in the January 6th attack. Denver has since co-authored a book with Hunter Walker titled The Breach, available everywhere you like your books. That's where I got mine on Amazon. Uh, he published that in October 22. Do you think he's working the committee? So I'm just thrilled to have somebody I've been wanting to show for. Denver, welcome to the show, man. Thanks for having me, buddy. Where in the world are you today? I think you're, you said you're West Virginia or something. <laughs> Well, I'm coming to you from Berkeley Springs, West Virginia, but what's really incredible is I'm really near, really close to Skeeter's Body Shop. Wow. So, you know, that I just wanted to, I wanted to be somewhere special when I talked to you today, you know, coming back from. <laughs> it's a class show we run here, brother. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's very different. You know, I've been to the distillery, which uh, I'm a huge fan. I actually, you know, I was getting ready for the show. My son and I went to the distillery. I think, you know, I think I was texting you were out of town and uh, I brought back gin and whiskey and I was going to put it on the set for the show, but it's gone, bro. So I need to, <laughs> I need to get my ass back to Virginia, pick up some more gin and, and whiskey and bring it back. If you guys haven't been out to Silverback, it's not just a distillery that's gorgeous, uh, great, and, but it's in a great location and a beautiful part of the state of Virginia. And so if you, if you follow my friend Denver on Twitter, you see about every couple of days, he puts up some really nice pictures of his property and his dogs and uh, always makes me homesick for my, my second home of Virginia. So good to have you back with us, Denver. Now, you know, Denver, I think I told you when we started, the, when I, I booked you for the show, and, and thank you so much, that I always like to start the show i can read your bio you know you can go to wikipedia and all that stuff you know a lot of you guys do a lot you do a lot of tv you know they pop you on the show and they say, ah, here's denver rickman former congressman you know staffer you know but i always like to ask guests because you know we're all here in a weird place and in this moment in our democracy so i always ask my guests to start off the show the same question is like all right brother so tell us a little bit about your journey that got you here to the front seat of a car near skeeter's body shop 
<laughs> well, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting journey, friend. Thank you for having me on, man. You know, I really wanted to do this and I appreciate you and everything that you do. Um, you know, how I got here is so screwed up, right? You know, you're talking about a guy, you know, Congressman and Distiller is just my cover. You know, I had 20 years of counterterrorism, uh, started kinetically, you know, dropping bombs on foreheads. Uh, but then um, uh, somehow after 9-11, you know, I did, you know, Fred, I did Operation Allied Force in 99 when I was a new intelligence officer. Uh, I was on the Romanian-Serbian border, and it was my first time I got to really look at Eastern European intelligence services. I was in the Middle East in 2000, uh, actually training Omanis on F-16 operations, had an incredible time there. But in 2001, you know, I deployed 10 days after 9-11 as an intelligence officer, an Air Force intelligence officer supporting, you know, B-1s. Yeah. So, um, you know, it was interesting is that I was, you know, we, I was with an Air Expeditionary Wing, so we mission planned the first bombing runs to Afghanistan. Wow. And I was there for quite some time, you know, hitting the terrorists and, and you know, caves and things like that. So, you know, fast forward, I went to NSA in 2002, I got out of the military in 2003 as a captain. I was a Mustang. I'd been prior enlisted, got sent to UVA, nice. had three daughters by the time. So, brother, what happened was that, you know, they thought I was barely smart enough to do crazy things. And I started getting roped into these Air Force top secret special acquisition programs um, where we were combining multiple data streams to go after not only bad actors or people, targets, but to also go after um, country infrastructure or networks and also types of equipment, wow. right, or top yep. types of organizations. So it, it, it's really insane that I finally, I did really well there to the point that I started the and, and led the counter IED cell that went after Iranian supply of IEDs into Iraq in 2006, 2007, a name you might recognize as Soleimani at that time. Yep. So in the and then I started my own company in 2007. I sold that in 2012, and I actually could now afford to not eat at Dairy Queen every day. I could afford to eat at Outback Steakhouse, so it was an incredible Fancy. move up for me. Uh, and at that point, I was the CEO for the sold company for three years. Now we're up to 2015. My wife had started a distillery by then, 2014, so we now had Silverback Distillery in Afton, Virginia. I was consulting. The Pentagon calls me, Fred. They asked me to be a senior consultant in electronic warfare and countermeasures. And then, you know... 2017. Now I'm 47 years old, Fred. I barely voted. Like yeah. that's how I was into politics. Um, but somebody said, Denver, you know, you're really smart in the small business stuff. I almost said, shit, I apologize. Uh, you're, you're very, Don't. you know, you're, <laughs> <laughs> this is, this is not a G rated show, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> Matt's very offended uh, back there. <laughs> Um, so, so here I am. Right. And I, so I run for governor for all of 10 weeks in 2017, never being to a committee meeting, just straight out, just like, Hey, I'll run for governor, you know, and for somebody who was in the intelligence field, you would think I would have prepared the battle space a little bit better, Fred, but uh, I did not. Well, you were but Air Force. So. <laughs> I can't believe you could even read my book, but anyway, so, um, so what's amazing Sorry, was that a... No, nah, it was well done. It was well placed. You slid that Thank in there you. nicely. <laughs> Appreciate that. So then, uh, so all of a sudden, you know, I became like this political figure as, you know, somebody who hated it. I got out after 10 weeks. I said, I can't do this. But people said, Denver, you have this sort of new message of, you know, a, a business guy that actually did things and worked for a living. Yeah. You know, you should stay... I said, bullshit, I'm not doing it anymore. Well, fast forward to 2018 and the congressman of my district gets out, uh, has to leave because of alcoholism. He said he couldn't do it anymore, which is ironic since I own a distillery. So I had three or four people Clever. come to my distillery, beg me to run. And I only had four days to prepare 
for a special convention of only 37 voters. And Fred, I got to tell you, man, I won by one vote um, in that convention and then won the general during a blue wave in 2018 as a Republican. Um, And in 2019, I swear in. And I really think at that time, Fred, that I'm a new type of Republican, right? That I can, despite, you know, Donald Trump, despite the fact, you know, I, I accepted endorsements, whatever I had to do. Um, but I always thought, you know, I'm special. <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm not a real politician, so I'm independent. What what I found out, Fred, through that sort of that journey is that you can't be independent, you know. And when I officiated the same-sex wedding in uh, summer of 2019 as a brand-new Republican congressman, that started my the attack vectors against me from QAnon and some of the worst people I've ever met on the far right. Yeah. Um, and that really start. that was the beginning of the end for me in my political, my short, you know, two years as a Congressman, even though, you know, I, I just tried to work for the district in a way I thought was professional um, and, you know, with integrity and morals. And I think what I found out too, Fred, is that integrity and morals are mutually exclusive from winning elections sometimes. And, you know, and I, that really, it really got to me as that was happening. And then all of a sudden, you know, I lose in a church during a COVID convention in 2020. And your, and um, your, opponent's, 20, your opponent's church, right? Your opponent, Bob he, Good's actual he church. Five, five, lived five minutes from there. Um, in a district bigger than New Jersey, the committees only chose one polling place or one convention voting place with only 2,500 people. So in a district of 750,000 people, I lost 1,400 to 1,100 uh, in a committee vote. Uh, and at that point, you know, I, at that point, the QAnon or the, the crazies were attacking, you know, death threats. I, you know, as you read the book, you know, somebody wanted to take all the lug nuts off my vehicle yep. and then they put the caps back on. It was just an awful time for my family. You know, the, the worst I think were the, the threats of people wanting to rape my family, you know? So, um, you know, I started to warn about QAnon as you know, I did the QAnon resolution on the floor with Tom Malinowski. Uh, I started to be very vocal about Trump also. And it was that time as I'm going out against QAnon and Trump, that really got really bad for me. Yeah. So once I left first January 3rd of 2021, January 6th happened obviously three days later. Then Liz Cheney calls me three days later and asked for help for my data analytics and counterterrorism background to break down January 6th as quick as possible. The group I was with broke it down in two days. Six months later, Liz and some other people asked me to be on the committee. And um, um, I left the committee a little bit early for some things wrote a book. Uh, and then people started calling me for intelligence stuff again, which is what I'm doing now and some crazy stuff that, that one day I'm going to tell you about and you're going to freak out. Um, so that's what I'm doing now, but that's how I'm here today sitting next to Skeeter's auto body. I love it. Well, it's a, a, an auspicious place to land after that, you know, and you know, the thing is, you know, like you said, Bob, you know, you were a dyed in the wool, honest to God, conservative member of the freedom caucus for God's sake. You weren't extremist. You, but you like me believed that the tax dollars should be spent towards the greater good, not just frivolously wasted. I mean, those were the conservative values that we held. I was, as you, I'm sure you've heard, or if you follow me, um, I was a Republican until 2016 myself and or tried clinging on. I was being dragged away from it, but it just moved away. And yeah, you officiated the marriage of two of your campaign volunteers out of the kindness of your heart because the decency that's supposed to be at the heart of what was conservative movement, you know, the, the, it is insanity. Bob Good turned out to be just as insane as we thought he was, right? And, and I guess, I guess the, that goes right into the question. Is there any reason to believe that the GOP can wake up from that fever, Denver. I mean, you've you've been you've been subjected. I was subjected with the Lincoln Project, as you know. I mean, the, I, you saw the QAnon, the death threats. That was a hell of a lot of fun. Um, do you think that they'll ever wake up from the the fever, or do you think it's a lost cause at this point? You know, I've told people, Fred. It's interesting. You know how you put it. But is it a lost cause? I I think a lot of the the conspiracy theories and fantasies, almost this apocalyptic way of looking at the world, is just good 
against evil. And if you don't have an R behind your name, you're somehow part of the deep state or the globalist takeover of America. I think, buddy, you know, I'm trying not to be too pessimistic, but for me being around even my district now, you know, I own a distillery, dude. Uh, A lot of people place to get to talk to them. I think a lot of that crazy is baked in Fred. And I'm afraid, I think there's probably between 40 and 50% of the GOP electorate. I don't think you can turn around from sort of the baseline beliefs that regardless of who you are as a human being, if you're a Democrat or an independent that doesn't go their way, it doesn't think exactly the way they want to think, especially with this new blend and breed of Christian nationalism. Um, I just don't know if you get that at 40 or 50% back, no matter what happens. And I think I, I've been sort of right on that the past two or three years. Um, I thought January 6th was a great victory uh, for some of these individuals, the Western chauvinist movement and things like that. So I think right now, I don't think it's actually been more powerful as far as the radicalization, certain elements in the GOP when it comes to the sort of the MAGA way of looking things specifically. Yeah, I, I, I think we agree on that. I've said that myself. It is, it is, it needs to be put out to pasture. You know, it's just, it's not, there is not, a, it's not, it's not conservative either. That's the funny thing. They like to talk about that. You know, it's, it's, it's a shock. Uh, so I'm really, I really appreciate your perspective on that, you know, <clears throat> talking about January 6th, um, actually, and, and it goes right into it. It's, just, I love this. So I was going through the book and I, I love this passage right here. So it, one passage of your book really jumped out of me as you're reading it this week, you're discussing the results of General Honore's task force on capital security. And this is a quote, a quote, in other words, we need to stop the bad faith partisan posturing. We need to invest in intelligence to understand the new domestic terror threat rather than denying it. We need to invest in democracy and difficult conversations rather than worrying about politics and fucking optics. Ah, see, you did cuss. <laughs> and it's, a, it's time to get serious. I think you, know, you cut right to the point here. You know, the book came out in October. Um, you're doing intelligence stuff, right? But do, do you see any progress in that horizon and what must be done to, to truly take this serious? Like you said, the Christian nationalism, the fever, the insanity of QAnon, these conspiracy theories. Are, are you seeing any progress? Do you still believe we sit where we did back when the book was published in October? I think we see, I, I think with the committee report, as far as, you know, I, I definitely, I think there's some good parts of the committee report. You know, I've been critical, you know, about the lack of, of real data and command and control sort of elements in the report. But on, on a whole, I thought the committee did a pretty damn good job of, of painting Trump for who he was. Um, I think, though, I will say this. What I've seen now, uh, you were talking about committee assignments beforehand, right? We're going to talk about that. You were talking about sort of the state of where the GOP is. I think that January 6th is now actually a segment of the GOP. I think you could actually break it down. There used to be, you know, Goldwater Republicans or Reagan Republicans. I think there's J6 Republicans. Uh, That's a really scary thing. And so now I think J6 isn't just a day. It's not a day of infamy. It's not a day where there was an insurrection. I think J6 has become a way of life for a bunch of individuals. And you see that with the grift that's going out there now, people still making money off this. And sadly, I mean, good Lord, bud. I mean, Jenny Thomas wrote a letter uh, in support of the 20 individuals who were voting against McCarthy. I mean, there is really no accountability for the highest levels of the party and what they did. And I think, I think that's the thing where people like me are, you sort of, you land between rage and exhaustion is that you just, can't get your arms around the fact that there really wasn't much accountability for January 6th. You know, you have the, the foot soldiers, the 800 plus DOJ charged defendants, but really the command and control elements, those individuals, um, they're laughing right now. And I think the money that they made and their ability to turn large portions of the population was very successful. 
And you talk about that in recent interviews. I saw, I think you were on Joanne Reed recently, where you talked about that disconnect uh, between the DOG, DOJ's work and the committee work. Uh, you were, you seemed stunned that the DOJ wasn't doing it in real time the same time you guys weren't sharing data back and forth. You see, you've expressed frustration a couple of times I've seen with the, the pace of the DOJ investigation and, and, and their decisions they're making uh, on the pursuit of it. Um, do you see any hope with the Jack Smith appointment or that there's, there's going to be any progress or do you still see that we're sitting in the same place where the real masterminds and the, and the, and the perpetrators of this are going to sort of get off scot-free? God, it's funny. You talk about hope, man. You were in the military. So, you know, you I heard know. the saying, hope is not a viable course of action. Right. <laughs> right? Hope is not a strategy. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, I think, um, I think I'm out of hope. Okay. Uh, I think really what it comes down to is I'm just seeing what happens now. It's almost like this sort of cold, it's not a cold, like, uh, like, you know, whatever happens, happens. It's not nihilistic at all, but it is almost to the point where, you know, it's been now, you know, we're over two years, right? But, um, we're over two years since Jan six. Um, if we didn't have real time data sharing, which is something we learned from nine 11 on, if we, if we had these intelligence failures on one side, on the other side, we had this ability for just in mass radicalization for fantasies. I mean, people who honestly believed Lord of the Rings was a documentary. <laughs> um, you have these people, you know, attacking the Capitol. It, it's very difficult for people who are facts-based sort of normal or sane, I think to look at this in any way, but I'll just have to see what happens. And that, you know, being this long, really the data is there. I know the data is there. We had the call detail records. We saw the text messages. Um, that's my frustration. I don't know if the DOJ or the FBI was working in real time with the data that we had. I don't know if they did the same CDR subpoenas. They didn't get a lot more data than Congress. And that's the thing, Fred, they, they have the authority to get geolocation data and data where they can see where people are. We didn't, we only got two from data. We couldn't really validate the text messages that it was all of them because we could never get this, the call detail records because Meadows would fight them and other people. So, I was very frustrated to learn that maybe there wasn't information sharing throughout the entire time. And to me, that is maybe if that's the case, if that's true, that is the greatest. I, I, I would think that is so dire for the American people. It is such a failure of government efficiencies. And I know that's a, that's an oxymoron, but it's such a failure of government tactics, techniques and procedures or processes uh, that I think that there really needs to, to look into why those failures are happening even today, over two years after January 6th happened. And so for people who've been in the counterterrorism intelligence business, I think that are sane. I think this is a disturbing time. Yeah. And, and I went, I did, I was, I don't claim to be an intelligence officer, but I did serve as an intelligence officer at the battalion level. Uh, I did have a TSSCI, you know, I, I, and that's exactly it. I know how this stuff's supposed to be done. And, and, you know, I, and, and, you know, this t the Washington Post a story on Tuesday laying out how the committee had an entire team working in the social media aspects of the insurrection at one point, they issued 122, wrote a 122 page memo prepared, but ended up not covering almost any of it. And maybe three pages of that made its way in the report in other ways. I was recently part of an exercise, which I can't talk about yet, but one of the things that shocked us in this exercise, uh, you know, trying to see if we've learned lessons from January 6th for the future of, of the Pentagon and others is the ignoring of the disinformation. The, there, there's, there seems, seems to still be an attitude within the intelligence and the government circles that online, that social media is just, oh, that's just Twitter, or that disinformation isn't the basis. But you and I both know this was coordinated on social media. The, it's the propaganda is driving this entire thing. I mean, how do, what does that decision tell us, you know, the decision not to focus on those, or even pull the thread of the social media stuff? Is it political? Is it stupid? Where, why are we thinking that the social media is not a big part of this? I think, I think when you look at the committee, I think they were looking at this as more of a 
almost a lawyerly political exercise. Yeah. Uh, and, and yes, for us, rather than a domestic terrorism case to look at, you know, how that control element happens. And I always talk about, and you know, this, the second, third and fourth tier, right? It's, it's not Roger Stone, you know, that, I mean, I, I think Roger Stone is actually the ultimate person we should have been concentrating on, but how about his assistant, right? How about the assistant to Mike Flynn or Alex Jones or Steve Bannon? Uh, how about the assistants to Lynn Wood or to Ru- uh, Rudy Giuliani or Sidney Powell, you know, all the Jenna Ellis, you know, so we're, we, we didn't really explore even deep enough, right? How these second and third tier elements worked to make this happen, whether it's radicalization, you know, whether it's funding and follow the money or whether it's simply actually coordinating with those elements. And, you know, like me, what also I would think should have been reported is probably that, you know, the Oath Keepers were actually texting White House officials, right, in November, December 2020, right, that the White House actually did call a DOJ charge defendant as the riot was happening. And you had phone calls to and from the White House from rally planners that had direct contact with Tario and Rhodes. Those are huge things. They're bigger than anything. They're bigger than Trump throwing spaghetti against the wall. And, you know, those are the things that, that get to me. Now, were there several very important things? I think the most important testimony in January 6th, Fred, was the, the mags, you know, Trump wanting to remove the mags, you know, right. from the Capitol area, right? right? And that, to me, Cassidy Hutchinson saying that was the most important testimony of the entire one and a half years of the J6 committee because it went to the fact that violence was expected or violence was wanted. And, you know, we can try to guess on all this, but I think, buddy, when it comes right down to it, your question to answer it in a more succinct way is there's a lack of expertise and looking at this in a different way based on the fact that the inf- information warfare battle space is changing in a level that government cannot react to. There we go. Yeah. It's something I talk about a lot, right, is that these institutions that we have are not at all well prepared or understanding of the times we face. My first thought when I read that that story about them ignoring the social media aspects of this was yeah, the dinosaurs just don't effing get this shit. I mean, you know, I, I, I'm not going to name names and it'll come out lately. There's going to be a documentary about the exercise I was in, but I had some wonderful, very senior people, you know, the graybeards. You, you know, you've done the military exercises, right? You have these graybeards and they're all retired generals and stuff. But they simply the didn't table, understand. I, yeah, the, yeah, the tabletops, right? But they simply don't understand mm-hmm. modern, they don't understand the, the impact of social media. They don't understand the impact of these conspiracy theories and these alternative networks. Um, I, I, someone said something, I'm, I shouldn't give anything away, but somebody said something, um, really interesting to me. Oh, in our after action review, one of the senior people playing a senior person said, look, Twitter doesn't matter. Only less than 10% of the population is on Twitter. (laughs) And I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? (laughs) Right. That is actually as incorrect as you can get. Right. I mean, you're talking about, you know, um, am I back? Did I, did you lose me for a second? If I did, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm still there. Okay. Yeah. You're good. Um, yeah, that is about as incorrect as you can actually. The issue that people don't understand in information warfare battle space is the perturbations or the cascading effects of different social media platforms that play off each other, right? And the fact that a lot of that can be coordinated, even in a decentralized way. You know, once something is memed or they have something that's working, they can do it in multiple layers, right? Fundraising, they're using the same hyperbolic and outrageous language for digital or mailers, right? All the stuff that they're doing when they're going out there, the same language is being parroted by multiple, you know, sort of standard media platforms platforms, whether it's OAN, right. whether it's Newsmax, Tucker Carlson on Fox and Fox Nation and some dumbass, you know, ignorant, vile documentary like Patriot Purge. Right. So all these are working together with Twitter. Right. With other platforms also. Right. You have Rumble. 
right? You have Parler, you have Gab, you have True Social, you have encrypted image boards, you have the Chans, whether it was 4chan or 8chan or Acoon, right? You have the Donald.win. All these things actually build on one another. So for anybody to say that Twitter doesn't have some kind of effect because only 10% of the American public on there, we have 350 million people, give or take, in the United States of America, 340 million. We're only, only 10%. Okay. Right. How about worldwide? How about globally? Right. Do we have the ability for foreign interference to come from other areas? How about Iran building these type of sort of uh, Twitter farms? Or how about Russia? Or how about China? How is that actually working? And once that hits the actual ecosystem, the digital, digital ecosystem, how is that Twitter taking to something else or the other way around? I want to give you a quick example, Fred, right? We did a report with the Network Contagion Research Institute about Barack Obama and how Trump was going after him for Obamagate. If anybody remembers this, it was Trump wanted to go after Barack Obama for, you know, stealing things from him. And you know where that came from? A troll farm. Trump actually was reacting to an actual troll farm on the QAnon level. And in 40 plus hours, between 40 and 48 hours, a troll farm conspiracy theory became part of White House policy. That's the issue you have. That's the information warfare battle space. And for F's sake. People need to get used to the fact that the digital world is becoming real. It's like a reverse Tron, man. Yep. It's like, you know, you can push the digital into the physical now. And, yeah. that, you know, it's just insane to me yeah. that people would say. Yeah, it really is. And I find it all the time. We, we, I, again, I experienced it in real time with my own work, you know, two years ago. It's, it's, it's you know, you, it, let me tell you how real things feel. Like you said, when your daughter finds out the lug nuts on the truck were loosened when she's trying to drive your car to get an oil change or uh, your security company sends you pictures of your house that are on the Internet. Like I did uh, a house that's yep. just a house that at the time sat in the main street of Richmond. Okay. <laughs> that you could literally stay on the sidewalk and put bullets through my window. Uh, you want to talk about scaring the show, your girlfriend? Yeah. You know, tell her that, Hey, by the way, I got to buy cameras and a new gun. Um, because you know, it, I'm not it, laughing you know, it's funny. It, it, I'm laughing because it's horrific. It's brother. horific. And you're like, what the fuck? And people, it's so, it's funny how people come at me like, oh, you know, people are saying these bad things about you. That's, <laughs> I can say bad shit all day, bro. You know, I've, I've had much bigger fish to fry in the last two, three years than, than people saying mean shit to me. It's like, go for it. You know, call me names. Yeah. Post the picture of my pink sweater. You really got me on that one. <laughs> you know, I, you know, um, and along those lines, you know, I guess I guess we talk about the insanity and, and the thing that part of it that's also made me crazy about what the transition we've seen is that the congressional instigators, right, the congr- the Josh Hawley and his stupid fist and, and which I love the running video because I live in Missouri. You're coming from Missouri right now. Uh, but of course, Margie Tara Green, I have intimate knowledge of it because I supported her, her opponent, Marcus Farr, as a dear friend now. Um, you know, they're now getting committee assignments. Uh, Margie Tara Green is supposedly going to be on the Homeland Security Committee, of all things. And uh, Gosar is getting back on committee. You even talk about putting them on oversight for, for well, for fuck's sake, there's nothing else you can say to that. I mean, it, it just feels like um, you've been up there. So let's let's talk about it. you were on the committee for financial services, I believe. Um, what's the importance yes. of this? I mean, what is the power that just even putting I think some people dismiss it. But what do you think is the power and the risk for having these fools on these committees as someone who's sat there? You've you've been on the other side of the podium, of the, uh, the, uh, the dais there. What's your what's your spin on what we're seeing? You think about financial services, you know, prudential regulation, you know, and oversight. If you're looking at treasury, you're looking at, you know, talking to, you know, the Fed, um, all the things that with all the big banks, right? You got the, the, the big banks, the medium banks, the small banks, uh, uh, credit unions uh, and security, right? When you're talking about OFAC, 
right? I was the actual, as a first term congressman because of my background in intelligence, right? I was on the national security subcommittee. I was actually vice chair because I know what I'm doing. Right. The responsibilities are huge on congressional committees and you better have people with an IQ over moron. Um, the issue that we have right now with some of these committees is that not only do they have an IQ under moron, they're easily susceptible to the most inane digital viruses and conspiracies. Right. And if you have people that making decisions for the United States of America, there's a very happy portion of the globe that's looking at us right now. And it's our enemies. It's the threat countries. You know, it is the China's, the Russia's, the North Korea's, the Iran's, right? Right. Uh, any state, right? Or non-state actors, right? That want to hurt us. And that's the thing. When we become so unserious, we're dangerous. When you start making deals with the lun- with the lunatics, uh, because for power or for grift or for fundraising, when you do that at your own sort of your, your own ambition exceeds the well-being of our country, you really become my enemy in a sense. Especially, Fred, you took the oath. You know what it's like to raise your hand the first time. You know what it's like? Like you're like, oh, shit, you know, like this is real, right? Or you're deployed, you know, or you have a night landing on an Eastern European airfield and it feels like it's a controlled crash or, you know, you're, you're sitting, you're doing things for the United States because you believe in this sort of this idea of freedom of thought and this idea of real debate and this idea that we're a free country. Well, right now what we have with the laughable committee assignments, with the dangerous committee assignments, if we as a country that is fundamentally unserious, and I think that's the thing that bothers me the most and that, and where I lose sleep is that how dare somebody try to destroy our institutions by appointing a Marjorie Taylor Greene to Homeland Security or a Paul Gosar to anything or Lauren Boebert to anything or, for that matter, a George Santos, Anthony DeVold or whatever the hell this guy's name is to any committee. Right. How dare you? And I think that's the issue that I have. And by the way, listen, Eric Swalwell. Uh, Adam Schiff, we did not get along when I was in Congress, but for them to be removed from committees and listen, me and Eric (laughs) didn't get along great, but now I was talking to Eric lately and I'm like, I feel a little bad. I went after him so hard (laughs) on the China stuff, but you know, you get caught up in it and and we talked about it. And, but the thing is, how dare they remove those guys from committees and put somebody on like a Marjorie Taylor Greene. It is just unbelievable to me. Yeah, it, it, it's shocking. And then you talk about the George Anthony DeVolder Santos, whatever the fucking name is. <laughs> you know, it's it's you talked about on Joanne Reed recently about how the Republican Party really is just looking for winning. Right. And that's what you, you get to. You said it's unserious, but you're right. It's about winning. It's about owning libs. You know, I, I think I joked today yeah. on Twitter about, oh, McCarthy's really owning the shit out of us now by putting a fucking fraud on a committee. You know, it it, it is an obsession um, with it. Right. It, you know, it's I'm struck by the, the fact. So here's what I'm struck by. The start article came out this week that his own campaign ran their oppo file on him, which we do. That's we run oppo on our own candidates, right? And we talk about how we put up with the strategy. I was I'm a strategist. That's my job in campaigns. For people don't know it, my job is messaging and strategy. That's that's what I do. I don't do email. I'm not making. I'm, I'm not one of those big money guys. I don't run any email campaigns or fucking commercials. I just talk to the candidate, give them ideas of what to fucking say. And his own oppo file was so bad that at least four staffers quit. So that's yay. You, you quit your your morals. But then you talk, then you pull the thread and realize none of them fucking said a word, right? None of them came out and said, we got a problem. None of them went to anybody in the party. So we got, we got to get this guy off the list. What do we got to do? So they, they weren't, 
protecting the country. They were protecting their reputations. So when he, when the ship did fucking sink, they didn't go down with it. Right. And so no one gets off clean. I mean, you, you get it. You've done this. You, you, you were hoisted out by a, a very corrupt Virginia GOP. Uh, I was there when that happened. I mean, nobody gets all clean this tobacco, do they, Denver? I mean, nobody walks away clean at this point. No, now, you know, you, you talked about the people that quit, right? Um, the reason they didn't say anything, too, and you know this, Fred, when I say, like, well, of course, is that if you actually quit, great. But if you come out against the Republican Party or that person during a, an election cycle, you'll never work in the Republican Party again. That, Forget being in con fundraising or, or being, you know, being in LA, that shit's sailed, right? Right. So, um, that ship sailed. <laughs> so anyway, um, I think, I think what you got right now is nobody is going to come out clean in this, but it doesn't matter because they are winning. You know, I, I, I freaked, not freaked. I, I was so stunned, Fred, when it was like democracy won, the Republicans only won by a few seats. I'm like, this is going to be the nuttiest two years that yep. we've ever seen possibility of violence is going to rise. And we just saw that in New Mexico, right, yep. Fred? Actual, uh, you're actual gonna, violence, actually gunfire. I've been saying it, you know, I've been screaming it from the rooftops. I mean, I remember giving my speech in October of 2020 about QAnon where nobody showed up, obviously, but, um, you know, about how dangerous it was. And I remember coming off the floor and people telling me, Denver, you're smoking crack. You know, these are just a bunch of loons in the corner that sniff glue and wear dunce caps, you know, and all of a sudden you've got people wearing horns attacking the Capitol on January 6th. And the, the thing that pisses me off, Fred, is that everybody's like, well, it was just aspirational. Even when you look at the intelligence services, we had people saying they were going to hurt members of Congress. We had people talking about the great awakening, right? We had people talking about the storm, right? And if you looked into this, if you took 10 effing seconds to look into what they were actually saying, what they want to do elected officials, what they were talking about overturning the election, you should have taken it seriously. And now, Fred, we have people who quit over a George Santos because they feel bad, but they're absolutely terrified to tell the country or other people how bad this individual is. And we have that rippling across the political spectrum because winning is more important than the country. Right. And that is just, that's just where it's at. Yeah. And it's, it's, and we all lose. I mean, the only, you know, none of us win and, and no one's governing. No one's actually doing the right thing for people. Article today, no. my, my friend, Tony Messenger, who's been on the show before his, his books in this pile here. Um, Matt, remind me to put out the book list at some point. <laughs> I'll do that. I'll do that in the Twitter feed. <laughs> but, you know, my friend Tony Messenger is a columnist here in St. Louis. He did a piece today about how families that are using the food banks here in St. Louis because they, even when Social Security went up, like the largest amount in thir- like 40 years, uh, it pushed people just across the edge. They don't qualify for SNAP anymore. So people who got a $10 increase in their Social Security benefits lost $75 to $100 a month in food benefits. So now they're God. going, Yeah. For, for literally a $10 difference. It, it, it's that there's no wiggle room in the system. And you know when they came up with this formula? 1964. 1964. Hasn't changed since 1964 to define what is poverty in America. And so you've got real Americans suffering who can't make ends meet. And we're all fucking off of Washington worrying about, you know, owning the libs and, and, and investigating fucking Hunter Biden and his hookers. It's just the inanity of it all and the stupidity of it all. Um, it, it hurts your fucking head. You know, you said something, I don't, I don't want to keep you too long. I, I actually, no, I can't be, I'll be remiss if I don't do it. Um, uh, you know, we're both, both of us are former, you know, uh, officers in the military. Both of us had clearances at the very top. I was, a, I had a TSCI, uh, um, as I mentioned, I was a time intelligence officer. You know, I, I'm kind of horrified by all of this that's going on with these documents, right? The classified document stuff we saw at Mar-a-Lago and now we've got Mr. Biden and his glitchiness. Um, you know, it's funny though. I'll tell a funny story. You'll appreciate it better than anybody. I remember when Petraeus got busted 
for sharing his classified uh, info with his boss yeah. slash girlfriend. If, but do you remember the details, Denver? It was his green notebooks, those lime green fucking notebooks. So for those who aren't military, the, the issue that was there's it come from like the company for the blind or something like that. And we, everybody carries these lime green little notebooks everywhere. And that's what you take, right? You got them, right? And you take notes in them and you take, and you, and you throw them in a footlock when you go home. That's what he shared. He, he got brought up in charges because he shared his own personal lime green notebooks. I used to joke when that whole thing went down that there was, Thousands of fucking military officers burning little green notebooks in their backyards. <laughs> right? Shit. <laughs> right. You know, because I have stacks of those fucking things, you know. But, you know, it, you know, it's funny. You know, it's like, everybody was like, oh shit, you can go to jail if you're green notebooks. I am so fooked. <laughs> but, you know, so having said that, you know, I mean, how to take me through, you know, and, and we can both to it, but I wanted to hear from your side of it. Take me through to our listeners and our watchers the difference. I mean, it's, seems to be no nuance we all are trying to own each other in this one and 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 then but there's a difference there's a grave difference between what's been handled with, with the biden situation and the trump's what's your take on that uh, the take is you had somebody who was fighting the doj uh for cla- against classified documents and somebody who didn't that difference is huge right, right. there Fred. There, so i you know and i and i tell people that like well still okay here's the well still okay i get it so how about i do the same thing and then we'll talk about the inst- same thing. The same thing would be for Congress or the executive branch to come up with a better way to transition presidential and vice presidential documents through some type of transitional skiff or classification officers, classification authority officers that can go through and actually look at those documents before they are ported to a private residence or to anywhere else that the president wants those documents. How about we come up with a process, right? A either a legal process or some kind of coded process where this never happens again because this is actually a threat to the American people when classified documents are floating around for presidents and vice presidents. That's yep. sane. Yep. Here's what's insane. To compare President Trump to President Biden, regardless of the fact that there's issues with classification and documents being transported and things like that, to compare those two items, is that is the insane. Because you had an individual at some Gaudi Mar-a-Lago place that fought DOJ, fought that type of coordination and organization, fought the fact that they could have done this peacefully in a transfer until the FBI had to go there. And by the way, that's a big show for them. That was great for him. You could say he's a political prisoner. You can use that for him. Great. It is totally different. Listen, do I think President Biden's team by leaking out all, you know, that it's very slow coming out, more classified, more classified. I'm like, who is doing this? Go in there. And by the way, Come on, guys, get your act together. You should have had a classification guy on site as soon as you found them and not say, well, the lawyer didn't know. That's just that's just bureaucratic ineptness and incompetency, right? right. That's all that is, Fred. That is not evil. Yeah. That is just people who didn't understand what they were dealing with. So that's why I try to tell people, like, listen, if this was standalone President Biden classified documents, I'm like, you got to be shitting me, right? Come on, guys. That's ridiculous. Them. Yeah. It could be dangerous to the United States. Stop with the BS. Let's fix this problem. That's a real issue. But to compare it to President Trump, Fred, uh, I just don't see how you do that. Yeah. I, 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 maybe I'm losing my mind. Maybe I'm taking crazy pills. But I think we have to look at what happened in each of these situations as standalones a little bit, even though the classified documents are the link. But the standalone is you had a president who already, through prior performance, through past performance, indicated that he was irresponsible and didn't know how to handle facts, truth, or documents based on his belief in stop the steal and trying to overturn an election and to actually be the leader and the voice of an insurrection in the United States Capitol. Last time I heard Biden didn't do that. There's that. 
There's that. Yeah, it's funny. There's that. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think about something. I was at the. I was, I've been traveling quite a bit lately, and you know those little tags they stick on your your luggage now. They've got an RF, RFID tracker in them now. That's how they track your luggage. It's not. They're not scanning them. It's got an RFID. How fucking hard would it be to put that on the damn folders? You know, <laughs> you know, it's like the idea that we're still doing, you know, memos and you know, transfer documents. Like, just stick an RFID on that. Yeah, we'll know what's in that document. It, it's literally computed into it. It's not the technology exists, but it's just the the bureaucracy and the stupidity. It's like at some point we have to wake up. And again, well, going back to governing. And and I got one last question. I'll let you go. You know, at the end of the book, sure. at the end of the book, you talk about leaving the Republican Party on June fifth, twenty twenty two, and. And also say, you literally say clearly in, back in October, you're not sure where you're going to go next. So I guess the guy's last question that we let you go back to Skeeters is, is have you found your path yet? I mean, where, where are you at in the world and, 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 and what's the path ahead for you, my friend? You know, when the book came out, um, I thought I would get calls, more calls about running for office again or calls that I hate you. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that would, those were the calls I figured I'd get. Right. Instead I started, I got those calls, but instead I got more calls about, Denver, come back to NSA. I had friends calling me say, would you do this again? My God, you know, you guys look like you merged a bunch of different types of telephone formats. Could you come back and tell us how you did it, you know, in an open source way using specific types of technologies? All of a sudden I started to get tech calls again. I started to get Intel calls again. Mm. So already I have a company that has three contracts uh, where I'm doing stuff where I'm actually doing forensics work. I'm doing data work and telephony work and also consulting on where we could go, right, for disinformation and for domestic terrorism. How crazy is that, right, Fred? I love it. Um, but, you know, I've had a lot of people ask me for, to run for office. The only thing I would consider, I, I can't imagine going ever get, going to Congress again. I think I've said I'd rather set myself on fire than be in that environment again. Tough but fair. But I think I, I would run for an executive position. The thing is, is I don't want to belong to a party. You know, I, I, I think you've heard, I, I like to listen to distillers in the past. And George Washington wanted us to stay unaffiliated, right? And I really love distillers. So, you know, he made whiskey, I make whiskey. So I want to stay unaffiliated and independent because I never want to be actually attached to a leather that try to tries to sort of encompass who I am. I'm just not wired that way. And yeah. I found that out through the whole four years of my political career, whatever the hell that was. So I think if I were to run again, I would run as an independent or unaffiliated. I think I love the word unaffiliated to me. That really is how I'm sort of, I think how my soul works. Yeah. Cause I'm just an American man. Yeah. And I love, I love the freaking thought of America and what we can be and what we can do. And, you know, I think, um, I don't know if it's even possible with how entrenched the two party system is. I think it's diseased. I think it's very difficult to get through it. I think it's really wired for sound. But on the other hand, what if you could have a few folks at some point that maybe actually give it a go? So I, I would tell you my, the political front, if I were to run, I'd probably run for governor of Virginia again or, you know, something like that. I don't know if it would be this term or next time in 2029. I'm 52. I'm getting old, man. So who knows? I might just ever do it again. I hate politics. I despise it. And I'm so happy back doing incredible sort of knuckle dragging tech work. Um, and with, you know, this sort of this thing of being a Congressman, the honorable, um, people listen, right. Yeah. I have a voice that I never had before on the fact going through the hell that I did for those two years. So the advantage of being in Congress is that people actually are like, God, Denver Riggleman got through that hell. And then he had enough integrity to get out of it in the right way by losing because he just wanted to help some friends and be a good guy. And I think that's really helped me. I thought it would hurt me. I thought I was done forever, especially after the book came out. That was sort of my, see you, see you all later. I'm going to my distillery and make liquor because I know the breach is going to piss off the far left and the far right. Yeah. But instead, people that are in the business have been calling me like, dude, 
it's good on you, man. And it's been emotional with some of my friends who called me that I thought I had lost. Um, and so Fred, it's been a hell of a ride and you never know when you do the right thing. I fully expected my face to be ripped off again. And it has been in some circles, but on the other hand, the flip on that has been people calling me saying, you know, we sort of trust you cause you seem to don't give a shit. Now you're fit. I've done my thing. I don't have to prove anything to anybody. Um, and I think that's really been helpful to me when I thought it was really the end of anything political for me once the book was released. I love it. Well, what I hear is service. You know, a couple of weeks ago we had, uh, between the holidays, we had Jason Kander on the show. Uh, and Jason, if you know him, he's a, he ran for the Senate here in Missouri. And then mm-hmm. and he wrote a wonderful book about his PTSD journey. Uh, and, yep. and, and it's a fascinating journey. But, you know, I asked him, like, and, and if you hear the thread, it's a thread. You know, he was an Army officer like, you know, like I was, you know, Air Force like you service. And what I just heard from that conversation was, you know, I'm still, I found a way to keep serving, uh, serving the nation, serving the constitution, serving the, the right things in our country. And that's, I think that's all we can ask. I mean, I think when we get past partisanship and, and, and all these things, um, it really is about so many of us are in this for the right reasons and that's to serve. So I'm thrilled that, uh, you two are one of those and always have been. I think it's why I always liked you, even when we were disagreeing on politics and I'd left the party. So I really appreciate you, Denver. So I always ask my guests, where can they, where can they find your brother, where they can find you online? I think you're on MSNBC kind of regularly. Where, what about, where's your, what's your internet handles, brother? Yeah. I'm a, so rep Riggleman on Twitter and also a Riggleman for VA. Um, uh, you know, I'm on post also for Denver Riggleman. Um, I'm on Mastodon also on Denver Riggleman, All those things. Uh, you know, so there you go. Um, but you know, I, you know, that's just, you can find me uh, at uh, silverback distillery, man. If you want to have a drink, uh, it's not hard to find me, which is sort of scary too, Fred. As you know, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but, is this a good idea? Yeah. <laughs> Come out there, you know, d- do it on your own peril. Uh, so, but yeah, so, but that's where you can find me. And uh, I really appreciate your friend. Thank you for having me on. Thanks, man. I really appreciate you taking time and your journeys to stop inside the road and talk to us. Well, that means the world to me, brother. So I'm looking forward to seeing you. I'll be back in Virginia, I think, at the end of this month or the next month. we got birthdays. we got babies. Got a, i got a fourth grandchild coming, so I'll be back for that. And uh, I'll, drag my, I'll drag my bartender son. We'll come see you, brother. Please come see me. I'll make you a smoked old-fashioned. Uh, God, special. I've gotten hooked on those lately, bro. <laughs> All right, good. Well, thanks for joining us, man. Go continue your journey, and we'll see you soon, brother. Thanks, brother. Man, what a fun interview, right? I, I think my favorite thing, we were joking before we went on camera on recording this thing that uh, I have a podcast so I can talk to cool people. <laughs> you know, I'm paying, I'm paying to have friends to talk to you. So it's okay. I, poor Matt doesn't want to talk to me anymore. My, my girlfriend's sick of my shit. So it's, uh, I, what a terrific, follow Denver. He's a, he's a sharp, smart guy and, and, and no joking, no kidding aside. I'm not sponsored by them, but his, his distillery is a wonderful place and it's a wonderful location and goddamn the booze is good. So uh, he really is there. If you just text him, let him know you're coming. Uh, as always, you can find me at Twitter at FP Wellman. I'm still on there. I'm actually going back up again. I don't know what's going on. The algorithm likes me again. My official Instagram is FP Wellman official. I'd love you to follow that. We're doing some good stuff there. And then all the other places, uh, FP Wellman on, uh, on post and Mastodon. As always, you can find the show on On Democracy Pod on Twitter and, of course, On Democracy Podcast on YouTube. Um, tell your friends if you like the show. I hope you give us a great review comment like share and of course subscribe we gotta you subscribe i think we're at 900 or so on youtube man i'm dying to get over a thousand so uh we can make that big 10 cent money <laughs> i am a paid podcast we've made 25 dollars uh so that's good i got the nicest message last night from one of my oldest and dearest people i love that she loves the show thanks for listening jennifer I'm glad you're watching. I'm glad you love the show. It means a lot to me that you're tuning in. Before you go, I want to thank our great marketing partner, Vi Media. Vi Media is an award-winning digital marketing agency based right here in St. Louis. They can handle all your different marketing needs, not just in St. Louis, but nationwide. Your partners that generate proven growth 
variety of industries. So check them out. It's easy to find them on the web. It's vi.media. That's V-I-E.media on the internet. As always, you can find me there. Our week next week, we get a, I'm actually taking a short break, a little vacation, but I will be back for the next show in studio. We've got a wonderful guest, Santiago Mayer, of veterans, or excuse me, voters for tomorrow. Uh, I, I'm thrilled to have these guys on. Uh, Santiago is a dear friend and a smart young man who's making Gen Z uh, get out there and vote. So join us next week. A lot of cool things. Check out the old shows. Check out the old clips. Follow us on Twitter. I think you'll find some great little nuggets that still pertain. Uh, the show is really rolling here in season one. Uh, I really appreciate your part of it. Have a great week.